When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the Russian retreat from Snake Island, get the latest from the final day of the NATO summit in Madrid, and we interrogate the CCTV footage from the site of the strike on the mall in Kremenchuk. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 30th of June, day 127. And today I'm joined by Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva and, joining us from the NATO summit in Madrid, Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols. I started by asking Dom and Natalia for the latest updates from the Black Sea. Um, I think it's important to say that Snake, Snake Island has been in headlines quite a while. We heard, of course, from the Ukrainian side of um, heavy bombings. Ukrainians uh, have been tar- hard targeting Snake Island for a few days already. Uh, and uh, the Ukrainian command reported this morning that uh, um, Russia retreated from the island. Um, the Ministry of Defense confirmed the report, but it's quite it's quite unusual how they um, chose to describe it. They describe it as a goodwill gesture, saying that the site was strategic, but it has, quote, fulfilled its function. Um, and they did admit that um, it was difficult to hold due to constant attack from Ukraine. Uh, Dom Nichols, do you want to add to that? What's the strategic significance of this retreat? Um, well, I'd say that I mean, I do one of these rare occasions when I, I agree with Russia. This is this is a goodwill gesture, just not the way they intended it. I don't think. Um, I think this is very, very important. Um, we've spoken many times on this pod about Snake Island and how it confers a huge advantage to whichever side holds it. Russia needed to hold it in order to um, provide an air defence umbrella and a, and a sea defence umbrella for uh, for any forces that then might go and try and push on to an amphibious resort in Odessa and to control the south of the southern coastline of Ukraine. Ukraine needed to hold it not only to, re- to, to push that back and to remove, the, uh, to remove the threat to Odessa, but also in order to uh, impose their own uh, protection zone to try and get the grain out. 
Um, and so this is, I think, a very significant moment because if Russia is saying that they can't hold on to it anymore, and we think that's likely happened because of the inflow of heavy weapons, um, so high Mars, but also the French Caesar 155mm self-propelled guns, um, other MLRS multiple launch rocket systems that have gone uh, into, the, into the coastline, so not on Snake Island itself, but along the, the southern coast of Ukraine, if they have forced the Black Sea fleet to, to be uh, to have to stay so far away that they can't provide protection to Snake Island, then that is very significant. If that if that chops out a portion of the northwest corner of the Black Sea in which the Russian fleet can't operate, then that is that is significant. Not only because it it then might unlock this way of um, getting the grain out. There's still a long way to go there. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this is the the, the necessary first step to do that. But also, if this stymies Putin's plan to control the south of the country, and in particular Odessa, then that absolutely takes away or, or massively reduces the risk of the, of the country not being able to um, feed itself, i.e. not being an economically viable sovereign state. If the economy was so, so denied because it didn't um, have access to the coastline out of which much of the economy um, flows or, or through which much of the the money is generated to, into the economy, then that that is very significant. So, so if this if this is signalling that Russia are no longer, or for now at least, able to push west from where they currently are, just north of Crimea, um, around Kazan, that that and that area, push west through Mykolaiv onto Odessa, that is very significant indeed. And Natalia, can I just come to you? How has the news of Russia's retreat from Snake Island been been received in Russia? What's the reaction been? Sure. Um, obviously, if you speak about uh, state media, they are pretty much towing the Kremlin line, saying that uh, we have rejected this tiny island and um, it doesn't really hold any significance anymore. Uh, but I think it's quite notable how um, ultra-conservative commentators have been reacting, including um, Igor Girkin, uh, a man who was quite prominent in 2014 um, when... Um, uh, when the war first started in Eastern Ukraine, um, as some of our listeners might know, uh, Girkin has been quite critical of the Russian command and the way they are conducting the war. Not in the fact that the war is being waged, but in the fact that to him, the um, uh, Russia, Russia's army is not ambitious enough and it should be pretty much carpet bombing the entire country. So... Um, he has quite quite a large um, social media following, and uh, um, he's been uh, posting uh, a number of um, messages. And he he clearly sounded quite upset, describing it it is a political defeat for Russia, which shows that uh, the Kremlin is really not interested in a uh, major. Um, um, you know, in overtaking Ukraine in a, in a major victory in Ukraine, as um, ultra-nationalist figures like him would wish it to be. Can I just come to you, um, Dom? So we've seen there's some news today that the uh, a top US intelligence official has said that the picture for the war in the rest of Ukraine remains, quote, pretty grim. So could you just give us a quick overview of what's happening elsewhere away from the Black Sea? Well, I mean, it, it is pretty grim. It's still very artillery-led, still very heavy fires around the Lysychansk area. We think Lysychansk, so this is the town just to the west of Severodonetsk, in that pocket in the east of the Donbass. Uh, Lysychansk is, is over the other side of the river, and it's slightly on slightly higher ground, so easier to defend. But Russia have, have been making these slow incremental gains. I mean, the, the number of times we've said slow incremental gains, um, it, 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 it speaks of, of how long it's taken Russia to, to make any advances here, but, but they have. They are 
as Ben Wallace said to us yesterday here in Madrid at the NATO summit, he said they are making meters a day, occasionally kilometers, but nothing like the the mass breakout that that they they should have done with it with the forces they've they've massed and they've taken forces from elsewhere in the in the country, particularly the north, to try and um, to try and bolster this push into the Donbass. So they they it's come at huge cost to them. Ben Wallace yesterday was talking about twenty five thousand dead Russians. Now that these figures are slightly. Uh, debatable because firstly i mean as they say themselves ben wallace and the mod said they don't they don't actually know they're not able to count every single one but that is quite a quite a significant number and he was very he, he was keen to stress that was that, that was dead and the standard metric is three to one for, for dead to wounded so that implies that another seventy five thousand wounded and, and removed from the battlefield so if there's a hundred thousand russians been taken off the battlefield and we think they started with about one hundred eighty thousand. i mean that, that, that they've just not got many people left and that explains we think in some way why it's been so slow in the in the east however they have made advances we think they're around to the south and possibly the southwest of listed chance we think that that is that town is going to be if not if not cut off if they don't get the ukrainian forces out of there and they thought to be about fifteen thousand civilians then that town is likely to fold uh, to fall to russian forces in the very near future and that will effectively be the the rest or the whole of the Luhansk Oblast. Now, as we've said before, that's a, there's still a very long way to go before the Donbass is taken. There's, there's a huge chunk of the Donetsk Oblast, the, 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 the region to the south, that is still not held by Russia. So still a long way to go for Russians to claim they've, they've taken the Donbass. But it does look like this, again, this slow grinding, attritional, heavy artillery-led push in the east is going to bear fruit with, uh, for Russia uh, with uh, with listed chance so the the us the us assessment is is i think correct it's it's a, a very grim ukraine is taking a lot of casualties um that they may have uh, have been able to slightly sort of slow the tide uh, with the inflow of heavy weapons and the training that's going on um we and the, and the, the snake island might be the the most obvious the, the most recent and most obvious large example of this uh, if they're able to knit these these small tactical gains uh, into something much larger, then that 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 will uh, that could develop into a, a, a general counterattack. However, for now, I think it's fair to say that they are they are hanging on, and the inflow, as we said right at the start of this podcast series, that what, there's a race going on here between how quickly the the, the weapons can get in there um, against how quickly Russia can advance and and deny. Ukraine the ability to to survive economically, survive as a country, um, to fight to fight it, and and it, when that's still very much in the mix. So there's some some tactical successes here by Ukraine, but I think that is a a, a fair assessment by the U.S. defense intelligence community that it it is still very very grim and much in the balance. Thanks, Tom. And just to give our listeners an idea of the intensity of the fighting, there's a quote here from. Uh, Governor Serhi Gaidai um, from Luhansk, who says, fighting is going on all the time. The Russians are constantly on the offensive. There is no let up. Absolutely everything is being shelled. So that just gives you a sense of just the, 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 the sheer ferocity of the fighting in the East uh, at the moment. Dom Nichols, can I stay with you? You're on the ground for the Telegraph in Madrid at the NATO summit. What's, what's happening there? What's the big news you can tell our listeners? So I've just come out of a press conference with Boris Johnson. Everything everything was delayed, so I've had to I've had to just scoot out of Joe Biden's speech. In fact, I was the the last person out before they shut the doors to uh, to come and speak on this podcast. So you know, putting putting the potty ahead of the president of the United States. Here we go. But um, so I was with Boris Johnson. Uh, he was talking 
about the, the the summit here. He was saying that the, the Allies are very resolute, that they, he didn't put any details on any new, new weapons or money or anything like that for Ukraine. However, he did say that after the war, and he was talking in terms of a of a of, of Ukraine surviving, he wouldn't describe what winning or victory or anything like these these terms. Uh, what they might look like but he was saying that after the war it's then up to nato to provide um, heavy equipment so nato equipment and training and intelligence he specifically mentioned intelligence which i thought i thought was an interesting adjunct there he also said the big announcement from boris johnson was that he said that in british defense spending which is currently depending how you cut the cloth but let's say and the latest figures i had from from the mod was we're at about 2.12 percent of gdp national income the NATO baseline, uh, you may remember, is 2%. However, of the 30 nations in the alliance, only nine currently meet that uh, that 2% figure. Um, however, so Boris Johnson was saying that the, the, the figure will go up to 2.5% of GDP by 2030. Now, yesterday, the MOD was tweeting saying that, uh, and Boris Johnson said that the, the British defence spend, or sorry, yeah, British defence spending was 2.3%. However, he has included in that figure the billion pounds that was announced yesterday for Ukraine and all the other military support for Ukraine. That's all wrapped up and popped in the figure. You go from about 2.12 up to 2.3. So that was a little bit, a little bit um, cute, you, you could say. Um, however, I've been assured, I, I tweeted out about an hour ago that um, I was sceptical of this 2.5% figure by the end of the decade. Bearing in mind, that would take the spending up to about 74 and a half billion pounds that is a, a huge amount of money so i was a little bit skeptical of the 2.5 figure um, and i had a very senior defense source come straight back and and say no whilst they accept that the 2.3 percent figure that boris johnson was talking about yesterday and the mod were tweeting whilst they accept that that does include all the uh, the ukraine aid the 2.5 percent will not not only because we hope we're not still supporting Ukraine to, to this degree at the end of the decade. We hope the war will be over and there'll be a sovereign, independent, viable Ukrainian state. But the point was that the 2.5% is is uh, cash for, uh, for British defence rather than wrapping up all the other bits and pieces as well. If that's the case, that is, that is a massive figure. It will have to go around through the spending round. There's still going to be, as OMD like to call it, the knife fight in a phone box with the Treasury, about who gets uh, which bits of the pot. And of course, we're talking percentages, so it, a lot of it depends on the, the economy. If the economy uh, goes down, then um, the, the, the percentage figure might actually be, be achieved sooner than you think if the, um, if the amount of cash that Ben Wallace has secured, the extra $24 billion for the next, well, now three years, um, it goes in. As it, as it does, that sort of baked in, so the percentage might... Um, might go artificially if the economy drops but you know let's let's take it at face value the british defense spending going up to two and a half percent of gdp by the financial year 2930 is a huge amount of money 74 and a half billion pounds extra likely to go on things like the future combat air system and um maybe some other uh, other big big items but um but that is a that is a big figure and i was very glad to have been able to to sort out whether or not that was the ukraine aid was uh, was included in that i'm not a, i'm not listening to the joe biden speech at the moment i will catch it afterwards he's downstairs now i'll go and grab one of the screens shortly and i'll be able to uh, to give you an update on that tomorrow thanks tom and just just for our listeners what's what's on your agenda for the rest of the summit are there any other stories that people should be thinking of or looking out for 
Well, yeah, so something's going to close. There's something that actually has officially closed. So Jens Stoltenberg, uh, he spoke about an hour and a half ago. He, he formally closed the summit and he was hammered in questions about this, the NATO, the new NATO model, this 300,000, the high readiness force. NATO at the moment has a high readiness force of about, of about 40,000, held at varying uh, notices to move. And, uh, and we all kind of understand what that is. So today, HMS Prince of Wales, one of the, the sec- Britain's second aircraft carrier, is acting as the um, the flagship for, for the NATO Maritime Force. So so we are already in there and it's doing it and stuff. But earlier on this week, uh, or a couple of days ago, NATO said that that, that high readiness force was going up to 300,000. And we all went, wow, crikey, you know, where's all that going to come from? Who's going who's gonna to supply that? If you've got a very firm figure, albeit it's, it's a nice round figure with lots of zeros, but you know, you've, you've put you've put a figure on it 300,000 that there surely must have been some work to say right well we're likely to get this from the US and we're going to get this from Britain and France and all the other allies are going to put this in and uh, it turns out no they're about to start that work and it's up to the incoming new supreme ally commander Europe who's uh, coming in I think the next next week actually he's then going to do a whole load of work to uh, to decide what the what the ask is what the what the problem set is and therefore what uh, what he needs to uh, uh, to have in his locker to to address those problems. So this figure of three hundred thousand seems like a complete misnomer, um, and it's going to roll and roll and roll that one. But we 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 were asking Jens Stoltenberg in in questions, but they really sort of fudged and ummed and erred quite a lot. So uh, so yeah, more to come on that is all I can say. However, that did officially end this NATO summit in Madrid, except that we then had various national leaders speaking. So we all sort of rushed off to the UK the UK section to listen to. Boris Johnson and um, other national leaders were speaking in their little bits and pieces. Interestingly, President Erdogan of Turkey is going to be the, the what we think the, the last person to speak here. It's supposed to be now, but it will be after President Biden, and that's going to be very interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, to talk about the accession of fin- Finland and Sweden to NATO and the deal that was done there that we talked about yes on yesterday's pod, but also whether or not. In the light of the news from Snake Island and this bizarre statement from Russia saying that they're now they're now happy for um, for un- under a UN uh, a UN plan to allow the um, you know, grain co- grain maritime grain corridors to be uh, to be established. Um, any, anything that happens in the Black Sea is probably going to be under the under the direction of Turkey. They'll they'll be most likely given that task. Probably not as a NATO task. It might just be Turkey, possibly the other. Black Sea-facing countries, Bulgaria, Romania, um, although they're all NATO members, this wouldn't be a NATO mission. But if, the, if there's a, the, the green light now to start planning for some kind of humanitarian maritime corridor, Turkey, as custodians of the Montreux Convention, Montreux Convention, which describes who can go through the Bosphorus Strait and into the Black Sea in times of conflict. So Turkey own that. They are most likely to be in the lead for any action um, in the next uh, or any planning that, that starts now about a maritime humanitarian corridor. So that's what we, or certainly I, if I get a chance, my aching arm having it in the air trying to get Boris Johnson's um, uh, attention. If I get a question, that's what I'm going to be asking President Erdogan of Turkey as soon as Joe Biden uh, finishes speaking downstairs. Well, thank you very much, Dom, and thank you for your reporting at the summit. Um, Natalia, can I just ask, so Dom's been there for, for several days now, reporting for us every, every day at the NATO summit. Has the NATO summit made the Russian news? And, and if so, how is it being reported on? I think it's quite interesting that uh, in the past four months that the war has been going on and 
in the um, run-up to the war, um, Russian officials have talked a lot about NATO and its eastward expansion as something that, to quote Foreign Minister Lavrov, uh, represent an existential threat to Russia. Um, now that we know that NATO is actually going to expand even further, um, coverage in Russian state media has been uh, quite surprising in the way that um, it was not portrayed as a defeat of Russia's foreign policies, one might think, because obviously because of Russia's invasion in Ukraine, NATO is going to move even um, closer to Russian borders, and um, especially if it comes to Finland, which, uh, which has quite a lengthy border with Russia. Um, so instead, um, Russian state media focused on what they um, describe as... Um, constant pressure from the U.S. on its allies in Europe and on uh, Turkey. So they made quite a big deal of um, of the agreement reached between uh, Turkey and Sweden and Finland, implying that, uh, or sometimes even saying it just uh, um, directly, that uh, Turkey has been pressured into the deal, that also Sweden has been pressured by the U.S. to make concession to Turkey, so that NATO is going to expand further. And there was also this funny uh, moment when... Um, on Russian state TV, on one of the main TV channels, they started discuss. Uh, they started discussing the menu at the summit. I'm, I'm sure Dom would know better whether it was a menu at the canteen or it was something that I don't know. Um, dignitaries and members of the delegation were offered, but anyhow, there was a Russian salad on the menu. And um, uh, some Russian commentators somehow decided to make a big deal out of it describing it as cultural appropriation and also a sign that um, the German potato salad um, is going to be the staple food in Germany as Germany and German people are going to suffer from high energy prices and are going to have to save on everything, including food. Um, Dom Nichols, can you confirm that for us? What's what's the menu been like at, at the NATO summit? Well, I could confirm the Russian salad has been on. I haven't... Um partaken of it myself but but that, i think that was mainly because i've just been rushing around um but yeah no Rus russian salad I, I should actually have a plate of russian salad freedom fries and chicken kiev but there we go what do get thrown out if i ask for that um no it, it's been all right it's been a big old big old setup here it's a big old um, jamboree this thing's thousands of people here we're mostly corralled up in the media suite which is the size of a well i mean everything's compared to the size of a football field this is this is this is i think it's basically half the size of belgium as far as i can see it but uh, but no it's been it's been okay it's been a lot of frantic stuff there's a there's a trick an art to summiting which i've i've not i've not mastered by any stretch of the imagination but you know you have to be you have to be prepared for long periods of nothing happening and then sprint, you've got to sprint across this vast cavern of sort of media stuff with wires everywhere and leads and god knows what because somebody is somebody's appeared somewhere the foreign minister of some of some countries appeared somewhere for you know a fleeting engagement to a quick sort of chat to the press and then they're gone i mean i said yesterday that when we um when the telegraph interviews uh vitaly and vladimir klitschko um, a couple of days ago, we managed to, to, to set that up. And so we knew they were coming in and, and um, had, had a quiet area uh, arranged just by the doors. But as soon as, as, soon as we sort of released them, not, not the, we could have stopped them, quite frankly. But after our 10 minutes were up, they then headed off just for a quick walk around the hall. I mean, it was like a feeding frenzy. Everyone, it was just mobbed. So, um, so, yeah, I've not quite mastered summitry. People just keep rushing off in all sorts of directions. And I have no idea what's going on while I'm just sat there typing stuff out and, and merrily sort of looking around. So I haven't had a huge amount of time to go and have a look at the menu. I will go and look in a, in a sec because I haven't had any, haven't had any lunch yet. But um, we're all just about wrapped up. Joe Biden's just finished speaking. I'm looking at the screens here. He's just finished speaking. 
Um, people are coming back to life, bashing the keys furiously. Um, so, yeah, so some, something's happened. He's, he's obviously said something which I've completely missed for you. I can only apologise for that. I'll go and find out what it is, and I'll, um, I promise to be a better summiteer in the future. Thanks, Tom. Um, Natalia, can we turn to you? Um, you've written a big piece um, recently about the Kremenchuk uh, shopping centre attack. You've been looking at the CCTV footage surrounding the, the area. Can you tell us what, what, you find, what you found and why it's significant? Hmm. Um, well, I think it's very important, you know, to use the tools of the 21st century because obviously this is 2022 and there's so much that, uh, um, so, so many details, so much evidence that you can find from CCTV, from social media posts, um, from anything else that's actually publicly available and which is all open source data. Um, uh, so basically we started thinking about doing that story because, um, it took a while for Russia to claim responsibility for the attack. They did say that they uh, targeted Kremenchuk, uh, but they insisted that um, there was no missile strike on the shopping mall. Um, uh, the Russian defense, defense ministry said they actually hit a warehouse nearby, and they alleged that there was Western-provided ammunition and weapons at the warehouse, and that that web those um, those weaponry uh, caught fire, and then um, that that's how the fire started at the shopping mall. Now we have an extensive amount of um, drone footage as well as CCTV footage that completely debunks um, this theory. Uh, first off, if you look at drone footage, you can clearly see that. Um, there is something that looks like a blast area. The entire central section of the shopping mall, if you if you have an eye um, bird eye view, which we have thanks to drone footage, you see that the entire central section of the mall is completely destroyed. The roof has collapsed, and it look it does look like something actually fell into that place. Now, there's actually um, uh, there's a lot of um, other video evidence, and one of the most helpful things that uh, I was able to find is several CCTV clips posted from two different locations. Um, uh, Russians did admit that they um, launched a missile strike on Kremenchuk. They didn't say how many missiles they sent. But from uh, open source data that uh, we saw, we can see that there were definitely two uh, missile strikes and not one. And that there was one missile strike that um, hit the mall directly. Um, there is a video, there's a CCTV video that shows, that actually shows the missile flying right into the shopping mall. And um, if you, you know, if you make a screen grab, you can even um, see the contours of the missile. You see that it is actually um, hitting the shopping mall. And second piece of evidence is um, CCTV footage from a nearby park. And um, uh, those, um, uh, in, you can see quite astonishing scenes there, obviously. And that those those videos, because it's not just one, those clips, um, they start um, uh, in quite an unusual manner because you see people running around this very nice looking green park uh, in the middle of a hot summer day. So people are running for cover, but you don't really see why they're running for cover. And in one of those videos in the background, you can see a um, you can see some gray smoke towering some some somewhere in the distance. And then a seconds later, um, uh, you can see um, like a flash of light, and the entire landscape 
starts shaking, and this is when the second um, um, the second missile uh, strike happens. And if also you know it was able, I mean, I was able to um, correlate that. Um, with, uh, you know, if, if you look at the maps, you can see where the industrial area is. You can see the park, and it's quite clear that people from the park, they um, heard the first explosion, then they saw the smoke coming in from the shopping mall, and apparently they decided to, they, they you know, they, they decided to seek to look for cover. They started running away, and this is when we saw a the second explosion, uh, the second missile strike that hit the industrial area. So um, there's there's quite there's quite a lot to to prove that um, Russia's explanation about a single strike on the ammunition depot is uh, is completely baseless. Thank you very much, Natalia, for that. I've just got a, a question from a listener, which I think is appropriate for now. From so thank you very much, Jevon, for sending this in. He says. In light of the recent missile attack in Kremenchuk, does Ukraine need missile defense systems like the Patriot, or Patriot, or is Ukraine simply too large to cover? Um, Dom Nichols, would you like to talk a little bit to this? Yeah, sure. I, I, the answer is yes to both of those. Yes, Ukraine does need them, but yes, it's too large to cover. Now, you've got to be um, aware of what we're talking about when we, when we talk about these missile defense systems. The most obvious one that, that people reach for, the most obviously obvious diagram, is the Iron Dome that, that Israel uses. But essentially, it's almost impossible to protect an entire country or, or even a very large area. And so most of these missile defences are able to put together a, a pretty decent umbrella over over a, an area. But those areas are, are it's what's called point defence. So it's, it's a small area. It's a, a large collection of troops or it's a very important piece of equipment or headquarters or a major seat of political or industrial economic power so it's very difficult to to have to to, to cover an entire country or an entire battlefront with with air defenses and you wouldn't want to anyway i mean you you wouldn't want to put this very expensive very very um, uh, sophisticated equipment out that's a target in its own right if all it's doing is is protecting smaller troop concentrations or, or dare I say it, so, you know, less um, l- less v- valuable parts of your military machine. If you had the luxury of the of the money to, to, to cover everything, of course, I think you would do, but I, that's just not not reasonable in this, this day and age, I don't think. Um, so, so, yes, it, it is uh, important to have these these defences, and we saw recently that the the NASAMS, that the Norwegian surface to air missile system, is going into Ukraine. Uh, there's no no talk yet. I don't think of the US Patriot system, although I think the Norwegian system is very similar. And, and Norway make the the launcher and the control system, and uh, the US are supplying the AMRAM, the um, advanced medium range air to air missile that actually goes or comes out of the tubes. So it's a Norwegian system, but with, with a with an American munition. That is very, very capable. That's going in. But yeah, it, it is a numbers game, I'm afraid. You can't, you can't protect everything all the time. You've got to be very selective about what you protect. And, and when you do it, when you are moving, you, you need to be able to coordinate all this so that you, you protect your headquarters as it, as it, um, as it shifts position, um, just the same as you'd, you'd want to uh, protect any of your, your major sort of population centres all the time. Obviously, they're not going to move, but you need to, you need to move the, the defending air defense systems around so that they're not just a fixed target that can then be destroyed themselves so so it is tricky it's expensive it's a it's an art in itself 
and it's um it, there there is more required in in ukraine i think and more is flowing in but again it, it seems to be that ukraine at the moment they are calling for surface to air missile shields however their, their big big call is for artillery and and more anti-tank rounds but uh, artillery in particular Thank you very much for that, Dom. I've just got another quick question from Cal, who writes, uh, the Russians' bombing of Mariupol's maternity hospital, the theatre labelled with the word children, and the train station in Krematorsk, not to mention the carpet bombing of cities, don't give them the benefit of the doubt anymore. He's asking, should, should give, given the context of this war, given the context of past Russian military actions, should we even be given... Should we, should we extend the benefit of the doubt to what the Russian military claims at all? I'm just, just wondering what you'd say to Cal, Dom and uh, Natalia. I'm sure if I if I may add, um, I think there are two points that we've we've heard recently, and obviously, um, I mean, I'm, I'm I wouldn't really want to go into the you know the moral aspect aspect of it of you know bombing innocent civilians um, and uh, clearly civilian targets. There's there's no doubt about that. But I think there are two moments which are important to stress that have been. Uh, pointed out by military analysts. First is, uh, most recently, we've been seeing that um, Russia's attacks are getting indiscriminate. And, um, you know, we're four months into the war, and there's a suggestion that Russia has used so much of its high-precision weapons, it did have a lot of high-precision weapons, that it's quite possible that they are running off high-precision weapons. And... Um, they might as well be targeting something else and then landing one kilometer away and striking this um, innocent shopping center. And the second point is is something that I heard very early on in the war when, um, for example, there was a shopping mall in Kiev that also was also bombed and a couple of other sites um, which would be, I don't know, like former industrial um, sites converted into a shopping mall, a former factory or something like that, sort of post-industrial legacy turned to, you know, civilian use. Um, That has led many observers to believe that um, in some cases, Russia may be guided by outdated maps, and it could actually be using maps which are um, several decades old that would show that, there is this military factory in Kiev and maybe they wouldn't even bother checking that it has turned into a, I don't know, co-working space or a shopping mall. So the, these are two, two points I just wanted to point out. Well, thank you, Natalia. That gives us, um, I think, some useful context. Dom, do you want to comment on this as well? I don't, yeah, I, I don't think there is any benefit of the doubt anymore. And, and by benefit of the doubt, I mean, doubt that they are professional military planners that, that, that know what they're doing and are thinking about what they want to hit doing correct we- what we call weapon to target matching or what i used to call weapon to target matching i.e., picking picking the right munition for the effect you want to achieve and not just chucking heavy artillery and high explosive around the place which is what they seem to do and i i was uh, messaged by a by a listener who who thought i gave russia to to easier pass yesterday when we were talking about the shopping center attack and saying that that uh, well, I I left room to say Russia may have thought they were they were aiming at a a target that had legitimate military value. However, I made the point yesterday, and I reiterate it again today, that they they di- then didn't take that thought through and to say, well, we we should use a a lower yield or a more precise weapon. So so I wasn't giving them an easy ride yesterday. I was saying they are. It's just as unprofessional to use the wrong weapon as it is to um, to 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 not be 
absolutely on the ball when it comes to your targeting processes. So no, I don't think there's any room for for, for the doubt. Now we, we we've seen what they are. We've seen that they don't care about the collateral collateral damage, civilian deaths. They don't care about destroying infrastructure, um, even though most of that will would be would be classified as a war crime under international law. And so I, I don't think there's room for uh, for give, giving them any more uh, benefit of the doubt now. Well, thank you, Dom, and thank you, Natalia, for that. And thank you, Jevon and Cal, for your thoughts and your questions. Uh, just to anybody listening, please, of course, do message and do send us your questions as well. We do try and get at least some of them in. Um, well, before I ask for your final thoughts, Dom, you've had a look at what Joe Biden's been, been speaking about in the conference that you were just shut out of. What did the American president say? Well, I haven't been having a look at it, but I managed to collar... Uh, Telegraph Brussels correspondent uh, Supremo Joe Barnes on his way out, and he's he's with me now. So so Joe's able. To, he was in the room. He's able to give you the update from from Biden's speech. So far too kind, Dom, uh, and hi, folks. Um, so Joe Biden stressed, and his kind of message was he sent kind of directly to Vladimir Putin was that what you have done in Ukraine has achieved exactly the opposite of what you were trying to before the war. Vladimir Putin saying, look, this is all about NATO. I don't want more NATO kind of expanding onto the Russian border. But now what has happened? He's got more NATO on his border. He's got another 800 miles of NATO border when Sweden and Finland join. But then so the headline kind of announcements that Joe Biden was then keen to make was his support is going to be in the long run for Ukraine. It's going, he's going to back Ukraine for as long as it takes. And that is a message that NATO leaders shared. They won't kind of reiterate on it because there are obviously some fears that Boris Johnson has kind of stressed that some like European nations might look for an early exit and a, a kind of a bad and sloppy peace deal that doesn't do Ukraine any favours. But Joe Biden, much as Zelensky, President Zelensky, asked NATO leaders yesterday, has delivered. He's announced another $800 million for weapons. And so is what Dom was speaking about. There is a new announcement for anti uh, so air defense systems he wouldn't elaborate on them but there has obviously been some kind of suggestion that america for a while is going to start sending its kind of heavy air defense systems we don't know yet but he said announcements in the coming days there's gonna be more multi-launch rocket system rockets more kind of artillery for those um and anti-battery radar so, so give the ukrainian military kind of help in tracking down where it's being fired at from long range um and and kind of to give you a kind of bit of atmosphere in the room, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, he was really heavily nodding along when these weapons were being kind of read out and kind of the package of assistance was being announced. So it kind of maybe that gives you an idea of who's driving the American kind of approach to this, who is behind the policy. And then um, so a bit kind of elsewhere, there's some amusing, funny bits, because obviously we kind of see Joe Biden as this kind of gaff prone president. Um he managed, when he was announcing that Finland and Sweden were set to join, he accidentally confused Sweden and Switzerland, two neutral European countries. That would be news. Uh, but so Switzerland, much to uh, Switzerland's uh, delight, will stay neutral and keep out of NATO. Um, and then the other thing is that a lot of the American journalists in the room are pressing him, uh, Joe Biden, on the cost of living crisis in America. So fuel prices is apparently at five dollars a gallon uh, in much across much across the states, and they were saying, look. What are you going to do about it? You're going to go to the you're going to ask the Saudi Arabians to kind of up oil production to kind of bring down this. Are you going to change your policy of hitting Russia with sanctions, especially on kind of oil and gas and other energy supplies? And he was like, No, look, what we have to realize. Biden said, What we have to realize is this is going to drive energy prices up. It's not what we're doing. It's not what Western sanctions are doing. This is Vladimir Putin's doing and his war in Ukraine. And that is why that he is saying the West and America especially are in it for the long run because they. They think freedom is a price worth paying. And they think that actually by defeating Russia and Vladimir Putin, 
it will then start to stabilise the world economy. Well, thank you very much, Joe Barnes, for that. So just for um, Joe, Natalia and Dom, can I just ask, if you're Ukrainian listening to this and listening to the news of what Boris Johnson said, what Joe Biden's been saying today, to to my ears anyway, this sounds extremely positive. They're in it for the long haul and they're promising lots of heavy weapons. Is is, is that a fair fair view of of what's been said and promised? I think it is. I think in terms of takeaways from this summit, we were surprised on the Tuesday evening with the news that the deal had been brokered between NATO and Turkey over Sweden and Finland's accession to the group. That'll take the alliance up to 32 members. So that came early. We were hoping slash slightly expecting, soft expecting that that was going to be the, the big deliverable here on the last day. So so in many ways, yes, there was a it was almost a bit flat, but that's because there was such good news on the first day. However, I think if you're a Ukrainian looking at this, looking at what the NATO summit is, I think I think there's you've got to be pleased with, with what they're what's come out of this, all the right messaging, the leaders are saying the right things and backing it up with, with numbers in, in certain areas. The big deal about uh, about Turkey and then Joe Biden finishing today um, with the $800 million, uh, the next tranche of, of money, of support for, for Ukraine. So there were no dissenting voices. There were no sort of sidebar conversations with some some countries saying, well, you know, maybe we've got to start thinking about this. There was, there was none of that. It was it was completely unified. And that's not always a given at these things. I mean, there's 30 members here, and that's 30 members with all the, the entourage of, of of spokespeople and sources and the, the foreign side, the, the defence side, the politics side. So there's a lot of people here, a lot of room for, for journalists to pick up all, you know, slightly dissenting voice over here. There, there hasn't been any of that, really. It's been very, very unified. And I don't think that can be manufactured. It's just not just not, not a human skill to be able to do that on such a such a scale. So I think this is this is a positive conference uh, event as far as uh, as far as NATO are concerned. And, and in particular for Ukraine, uh, the, Ukraine wasn't wasn't the only reason this was here. Please don't forget that this was to launch NATO's new strategic concept about how and, and where and why it's going to fight in in the future. What's important to it? Uh, and interestingly, just to, just a, a quick final note: for the first time in in a, a major NATO document, they they've addressed China. I'm not saying it's a not saying China is a is a there's going to be open conflict, but saying that, that there's there's some uh, there's some room for for competition and challenge and uh, and the, the the contest of ideas and values with China is going to be a feature for the future. But no, this was this has been a, a fascinating NATO summit, and um, I think over the next few days we'll see we'll see more considered. Um, or, or time for, for various national governments to really take stock of what's happened here and come out with more statements. But I think that the hot take from here is that it was it was uh, yeah, a good summer as far as Ukraine is concerned. Thank you very much, uh, Dom Nichols, there in Madrid at the NATO summit. Um, Dom and Natalia, can I just get your final thoughts then? What should our listeners be thinking of and looking to in the days ahead? Yeah, if I could, I just, uh, I mean, Dom has got us covered, I think. But just one uh, quick final remark that I have is um, I can definitely understand the optimism that uh, Dom has just mentioned. But from what I'm hearing in Ukraine, from what ordinary people are saying, from what activists and uh, officials are saying, there's um, there's optimism, but it's quite cautious because there have been a lot of promises made before. Uh, new weaponry is arriving, but also it's not um, arriving as quickly as it could or in in exactly the sufficient amount. So um, I think Ukraine Ukrainians are optimistic, but cautiously optimistic. For several days now, Dominic Nichols has been at the NATO summit in Madrid. He's been talking to world leaders, asking questions in press conferences. And the other day, he managed to get a couple of minutes with two Ukrainians who almost need no introduction, Vladimir and Vitaly Klitschko. 
Vladimir Klitschko, former professional boxer who held the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship twice, and his brother Vitaly Klitschko, also a boxer, but now is the mayor of Kyiv. So, Messrs Klitschko, thank you so much for uh, making the time to uh, come and talk to the Telegraph. Um, may I ask, what are you hoping to achieve out of the next couple of days? I am very happy to listen uh, to the support of Ukraine from uh, members of NATO. All uh, members declare friendship, declare support, and uh, we very appreciate and we understand without support of NATO and the democratic countries, uh, it will be difficult to survive. And that's why, that's why, one more time, I want to say thank you very much for everyone, for political support, economical support, and uh, defensive weapon delivering in Ukraine. I want to say defensive because we defend our country and it's very important right now, modern weapons to have in Ukraine. We saw that appalling attack yesterday on the supermarket. How resilient is Ukrainian society at the moment? Will it take many more of these attacks or is there any way that uh, society will, will try and seek a resolution to this war because these attacks are happening all the time. Just three days ago, the Russian rockets destroyed apartment buildings in our hometown. The second racket coming in the kindergarten, in preschool. Saints God was Sunday, no children were there. It's nobody died, but uh, in the building, six people was injured, one people killed from Russian attack. It's uh, the last bad news from capital of Ukraine. Just yesterday, more than 20 people uh, died, 40 people uh, disappeared, and the numbers of people who is injured more and more in uh, Kremenchuk, and uh, no reason. It's shopping mall to destroy it, and Russians lie. The Russians lie, they told exactly the same. Barodyanka, Hastomel, Erpen, Bucha, it was fake. Yesterday the uh, shopping mall also fake. The Russians liar, always. They liar when they make invasion in call that special operation against Ukrainian forces and uh, we see how many civilians died, destroyed in Mariupol. Kharkiv, in other cities, Chernigiv, just in capital of Ukraine, destroyed more than 300 buildings, 220 uh, residential apartments. Now, Mr. Klitschko, you, in, in the recent past, you have called for your people not to come back to Kyiv and to other areas of Ukraine. You say it's not safe. People are coming back in their thousands. They naturally want to go home. What is your message now to those that have had to leave their homes because of the war? My priority to support the people, to give the security, and uh, I told to everyone is his personal risk if they can came back to our hometown. Key was target and still target of Russian aggressors. If you ready to take a risk, welcome. If not, uh, stay outside of the country. How useful are? events such as this? Do, do they really matter? Do they make things change? Or is this just, just Western leaders coming together and, and feeling good about themselves? Today is big celebration in Constitution Day in Ukraine. I want to remind in our Constitution, declare 
uh, association with the European Union and association with NATO. We actually became candidates for European Union. It's very important for us because the reason of this senseless war is our wish to be the modern democratic European country. And uh, also member of, of uh, NATO for Ukraine is very important because natural status, its uh, collective safety is main priority for our country. We always will be never from Russia Federation. In Russia always was aggressive to all neighbors, always. So the talk of security guarantees, you think is... Security guarantees uh, for us, very important. We have to stop this war. We have to kick the Russian soldier out of, from, from our territory. And uh, the NATO status for us is main priority. And how is President Zelensky? President Zelensky... Uh, uh, ruins the country and uh, huge responsibility right now for him and uh, it's not easy task to be the president of country in the war or mayor of the city that can't be easy it's true Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the Telegraph you can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.